Hello, I'm Dr. Ann Katz. Welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism, but lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world, educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels. And now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, drrancats.com. For this episode, I'm so happy to introduce you to Dr. Lori Mintz. She's an author, a therapist, a professor, and educator who has written a book that should be on everyone's bedside. And I mean everybody, men and women, young and old, gay or straight. Dr. Mintz's book, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It, won the prestigious Consumer Book Award from the Society of Sex Therapy and Research in 2019. This book is a must read, and I feel like we could talk about it for hours. But in the short time we have, let me get to the heart of what being cliterate means. Welcome, Laurie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So, I mean, this has to be the best title of any book ever. Becoming cliterate. What does it mean to be cliterate? Well, cliterate is quite clearly a play on two words put together, literate or knowledgeable and clitoris. So to be cliterate is to be knowledgeable about the clitoris, which is women's most reliable route to orgasm. And I think even broader than that, to me, it just means considering your partner's pleasure as as important as your own and being sex positive and being pleasure focused. So pleasure, right? That's what it's all about for many of us. I guess for some people, it's about reproduction, but really, for the most part, it's about pleasure. And you write about the pleasure gap. So what is that and why is it so important? Yes. And the pleasure gap is what I wrote, Becoming Cliterate, to hopefully close culturally and in individual bedrooms. And the pleasure gap is the consistent finding in multiple research studies that when cisgender men or people born with penises who identify as men get it on with cisgender women, people born with vaginas who identify as women, the men are having way, way, way more orgasms than the women are. And just a few statistics to illustrate that, in one study where they didn't ask the type of sex, like was it hookup, was it relationship, 39% of women versus 91% of men said they always or usually always orgasm during a sexual encounter. That is a huge pleasure gap. And while it's largest in hookup sex and it's smallest in relationship sex, it never closes altogether. Women are having consistently fewer orgasms than men. And this occurs in heterosexual sex, not in lesbian sex and certainly not in masturbation. So it tells us that something is wrong, 
not with women's bodies that were difficult or elusive to bring to orgasm, but something is wrong culturally in the institution of heterosexual sex. I think that's the pleasure chasm. I mean, that is a huge, huge difference. And this book is written in a really conversational style. I think it's particularly attractive to young people, not just women, um, because I think it's really important that young men or men of all ages actually read this book too. You know, I'm just sort of thinking about, we know that for most young women, their first experience of sexual intercourse is a painful, um, not sufficiently lubricated. I mean, it speaks volumes as to why women continue with this when you have a a relatively unpleasant experience. So was part of your motivation to actually address these issues? Because I know you teach undergrads, right? Mm -hmm. So, and some of the quotes and the stories are so interesting and really, I think, further enliven the book. So was that part of your motivation? Thank you for the kind words on the book. They mean a lot, especially coming from you. And yes, that was my motivation. I teach undergrads. I teach the psychology of human sexuality to about 150 to 200 undergrads a year. And it was their successes, their frustrations, their pain, their stories that motivated me to write this book. Because when I taught about the research of the pleasure gap, it came to life in these students. It wasn't just statistics. They told me story after story after story of their sexual pain, their dissatisfaction, their lack of pleasure. And I started teaching to the pleasure gap and I would get notes and how to close it and all the information that's in the book. And I would get notes from my students. Thanks to this class, I'm orgasmic now. Thanks to this class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. I never knew this. This is like, everyone should know this. And I thought, you know what? You're right. Everyone should. And I'm going to take this outside of my classroom and try to disseminate it more broadly, even though I can't believe it's not common knowledge at this state of where we are, but it's not. So how do we close the pleasure gap? What can women do to create orgasm equality? Because really, that's what you're speaking to. Yes, I am. And I mean, I, I also want to say, like, I, I want to give the caveat that not every sexual encounter has to end in orgasm. And, you know, and I'm sure you talk about this, and I know you talk about this, in fact, that the pressure to reach orgasm is going to prevent it. But still, how do we make sure that there's more equal opportunity orgasms? And I think that's both a cultural question and an individual bedroom question. Culturally, we need to start talking about the clitoris. We need to start talking openly about our most reliable route to pleasure. We need to call out false images in the media. Any movie, practically, whether it's porn or mainstream movies, there's very little fooling around. The They start intercourse and the woman's having this terrific orgasm. And in real life, that would not only not be orgasmic, as you said, it would be painful. So that's how we close it culturally. And then individual bedrooms, it involves a series of skills and attitudes, which I'm happy to get into. 
That's so interesting. I often think about how I received very little sex education and I grew up in South Africa that was really sexually repressive more than anything else. Huge amounts of censorship. And when I think now about how young people, you know, learn from porn or from TV soap operas where, you know, women have sex and these wild orgasms, their hair's like all perfect. They have this kind of glow. They get up, they get dressed. Oh, and they're wearing a underwire bra. They get up, they get dressed, they don't go to the bathroom and they, and they leave. I mean, what kind of modeling is that for young people? Exactly. And that's the problem is that young people are getting their sex education from porn and movies without anyone saying to them, hey, this isn't accurate. There's no sex ed to correct them. I wrote a blog at one point where I said, young people today are the most misinformed generation sexually ever because they have false images with no correction, which is worse than no images and no education. So foreplay. I think language is so important and I'll go toe to toe with anybody about, you know, misuse of the female down there. Often patients come to see me and they say, I'm dry down there. And my response is, you know, where down there? Down there is like Australia. I can't help you unless I know if it's Melbourne, Sydney, or the Gold Coast. So language is really, really important. And you write in your book about, you know, really identifying structures for what they are. So you do write about this in the book. And how can we go about really encouraging people to use the right words. Men really don't misidentify the penis. Every guy knows where his testicles are and he's got like names for them. (laughs) (laughs) And I love to talk about the language too. So I'm so glad you brought it up. And in fact, the language chapter is my favorite chapter in, in the book and the one I feel most passionately about that just what you're talking about. We use the word foreplay as if it's just a lead up, right? For, before, play. It's a lead up to the main event, which is intercourse. And we use the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same. And we call our entire genitals often a vagina, which linguistically erasing the parts of ourselves that give us the most pleasure, calling our genitals by the part that gives men the most pleasure, not that gives us the most pleasure. And, you know, what I often say is if the tables were turned and we overvalued female pleasure and undervalued male pleasure, we would call foreplay sex and intercourse (laughs) post-play. Lovely. But we don't want to, I don't want to turn the tables. I simply want equality. So let's just call things by their right name. Clitoral stimulation, oral sex, manual stimulation, intercourse, and let's stop equating sex and intercourse and everything that comes before just an act that men have to go through to get us ready for the main event. And it also leaves so many women feeling broken. I can't tell you, and I know you've had the same. So many women saying to me, I think my vagina is broken, or more accurately, I think I'm broken down there, as you referred to. Yeah, no, you're not broken. That's certainly something that I've heard. Jane Usher talks about the coital imperative. And I'm just in the midst of writing a blog for the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO. I'm writing a blog about the language related to sexual performance. Why is it a performance? 
A performance happens on a stage. What happens in the bedroom should not be a performance, right? And, you know, people get performance anxiety. And to quote Freud, there's spectatoring. The language is just so messed up. Yeah, it's really messed up. Yes. But, you know, unfortunately, young people especially do feel like they're performing during sex. Unfortunately, many young women are performing. They're performing fake orgasms because they think they're broken or because they want to make their male partners feel good by pretending that he's, quote, giving her an orgasm. And they want to get the act over. Well, you see, their act, right? They want to get it over because it's not feeling particularly good. Yes. Right? And we know that men respond to vocalization during sex by orgasming. Right. So here you have these two people fooling each other. It's, it's really sad. It is really sad. And I often tell my clients and my students that, and I wasn't the one that came up with this. I think it was Lonnie Barback who said this, that by faking, you're teaching your partner exactly what doesn't work for you. Right. You know, and I think, you know, we know from research that young women are masturbating more than perhaps in our generation. You know, my grandmother told me if I touched myself down there, I was going to grow hair on the palms of my hands. That was really helpful. She also said if I, if I sat on the stairs, you know, outside on the porch, I was going to get hemorrhoids. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. <laughs> she was not very informed. She was certainly not very health literate, never mind cliterate. It's, uh, you know, I think it's just so fascinating. And really, it becomes multi-generational, right? If your mom or your grandmother or the women in your life don't tell you, don't help you to talk about this and to be open about it, you just, you know, you just continue and you'll do the same thing for your daughter or son, for that matter. And, you know, let's not forget the role of men in all of this. Absolutely. And, and I feel becoming cliterate benefits them a lot too, because so many, you know, young men they're you know, I've read so many things like they don't care about women's pleasure. They just want, you know, what they want. And I'll, I always say, well, sure, there's a, probably a few. And if you find one run, but <laughs> the vast majority really care. The research shows that they view women's orgasms as an achievement, as part of their ego. They want their partners to orgasm. But they're as misguided as the women are about what that's going to entail. And so they're not enjoying it either. They're like working too hard, like you say, performing. You know, I've had men tell me, I try to think terrible thoughts of things that upset me so that I can last long. So she'll orgasm. And I'm like, but she's not going to orgasm that way. And you're ruining your own orgasm. So becoming cliterate benefits both women and men. Yeah, I was just thinking, as you were talking about the man saying he thinks about terrible things, lie back and think of England, right, has been the message that many women have been given related to sex, that something you have to endure, you, something that you have to do to keep a man, but just, you know, lie there. And unfortunately, that's really all women kind of need to do, right? We don't recognize signs or sensations of arousal for the most part. And I think that's where all this play acting and vocalization and ooh baby, ooh baby comes from. Right. Because, well, if we're not getting the stimulation we need to get actually aroused and we're thinking something's wrong with us because we're not 
getting aroused, then that's where this acting comes from. And you know the stats as well as I do. And it depends how you ask the question, but only four to 15% of women orgasm from penetration alone. Four to 15%. That's such a small number. And yet that's what we're expecting people to do and thinking. And I've even heard other sex therapists say, oh, you can teach women to do that. Why teach them to do that when their bodies don't work that way? Why don't we teach them to ask for what they want, which is clitoral stimulation alone or coupled with penetration? So, you know, I'm just thinking about the anatomy, the structure of the clitoris, which is still portrayed in medical textbooks as this like little nubbin, this little pencil eraser up there. And I'm just thinking about those two giant wings that go back really to the entrance of the vagina. And I'm just wondering if perhaps if women were adequately stimulated, if perhaps engorgement of those two large wings that go back would not perhaps contribute to added arousal, added sensation. And perhaps in part, that's where this sort of vaginal orgasm that Freud talked about, the mature orgasm, what a lot of hooey. But I'm wondering if that perhaps might not play a role. Yeah, absolutely. The clitoris is a huge internal organ and it gets erections. Um, It gets almost 400% bigger sometimes. And that's the internal portion too. And as you said, there's these bulbs that surround the vagina. And that is a lot of times people think that when a woman does orgasm from penetrative sex, it's because of those aroused clitoral structures internally. But even with that, I think what a lot of times it would make intercourse feel better because we know like 60 some percent of women are having pain and not saying anything. But for many women still, even with those bulbs very aroused, they just, they need direct clitoral external stimulation. And there's just, that's what I'm trying to get across to people is that's not a shameful thing. That's how your body works. So we don't shame men for needing penile stimulation and their homologous organs. Why were we going to shame women for needing clitoral stimulation? So true. I was actually just thinking about the work that Debbie Hobanek and and colleagues have done around the use of lubricants. We now know that young women are using lubricants much more than they did in the past. And, you know, everyone's going woohoo. And I'm a huge fan of of good lube, right? Not KY jelly. That's got to go out the window. (laughs) And I'm shocked at how many of my patients are still using KY jelly and how many of their physicians or primary care providers are recommending KY jelly. It's like, man, just go to a drugstore. They're like 60 different kinds, you know, and I actually have a, a printout for them with ones that decent ones that are available here in our local drugstores. But anyway, just, I, that was a bit of a distraction. So, so many young women are using lubricants today. And I think it's because they are not adequately aroused. And so it's like a shortcut so that it doesn't hurt so bad. That's just awful. Yeah, I completely agree. It takes women time to get aroused, to get lubricated. And when we're aroused, right, the vagina becomes a wet tent. We get wet and not everybody does. And the cervix pulls up and out of the way. And if you have intercourse before that, it's going to hurt. You're not lubricated and the penis can hit the cervix and it takes time to be ready to receive a penis. 
And there's no magic number of how much, but Paul Joannidis, the author of The Guide to Getting It On, did a survey of basically, he did use the word foreplay. So how much, quote, foreplay do you engage in before moving to intercourse? The average was less than five minutes. There is no way that somebody can get aroused enough to comfortably have intercourse in less than five minutes. I think that really speaks to the pleasure gap, right? And just wanting to get it over because if it doesn't feel good, if it's not pleasurable, just get it done, man. I mean, you know, it takes more than five minutes, I think, to make a decent slice of toast. (laughs) Is your pleasure and satisfaction not worth it? You know, we're talking lots about orgasm. So for men, orgasm is usually, but not always, accompanied by ejaculation. I spend a lot of time with talking to men who've been treated for prostate cancer who no longer ejaculate, and they then assume that they can't have orgasms. And I really do spend a whole lot of time talking about the difference between the two and how they, yes, often always for some men occur simultaneously, but they are two completely separate processes. So in part, I think orgasm for men is about procreation. It's about getting semen and sperm out there. But what's the function of orgasm for women? Oh, I love that question. And nobody really knows the answer. That's what I tell my students. If someone tells you they know the answer, you can tell them they're wrong. I had a student say, but my other professor told me he knew the answer and you're wrong. And I was like, nope, nobody knows the answer. But there's so many theories out there about why. And I love some of the theories. I hate some of the theories. My two favorite theories, one is a feminist anthropological theory that's very little known, but it says that we are asking the wrong question because sometimes we ask why would women orgasm during sex, meaning intercourse. And this theory says that it's what's evolutionary adaptive is for women to not orgasm during intercourse because a partner who cares about your pleasure in the bedroom, who's clitorate, in other words, is going to be a better partner outside of the bedroom. And so that it's helpful in mate selection and not orgasming the same way your partner does. But I mean, who can prove that? That's not provable. There's a another really interesting recent theory that our clitorises used to be inside our vaginas, and they still are for a few mammals, and that orgasm used to trigger, in those mammals, orgasm triggers ovulation. And so it was functional to orgasm through the clitoris in the vagina to conceive. But then we started living in groups, and we started having a lot more intercourse, and we couldn't be ovulating that much. So the theory goes that the clitoris migrated outside of the vagina and we started ovulating on a monthly cycle. So you can see no, and then there's still theories that say it's about bonding, that it's helpful in conception. But Elizabeth Lloyd says, she reviewed a lot of the theories and said, it's just a fantastic bonus of fetal development. So what is the purpose I don't know, but they're a lot of fun. And so we might as well have women have them regardless of the purpose. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. I mean, who really does know? 
And I'm not sure that I would necessarily take the advice of a man about that. Just saying. (laughs) So here's a controversial topic, the G-spot, myth or reality? Because people spend an awful lot of time looking for it, including through autopsy specimens and all kinds of stuff. So does it really exist? And should we be looking for it? Well, Okay. So here I did a deep dive into this topic for my book. And does that mean that I got the right answer? I don't know, but here's what I concluded after reading a lot of research studies. There is an area in the front wall of the vagina, not a spot, but an area called the clitoral urethral vagina complex, which hear that word clitoris, it's made of several structures, the clitoris, the internal clitoris, the vagina, the urethral sponge, which wraps around the urethra. And for some women, they find that spot. Other women can't find that spot. Some women who find it, find that it does nothing for them or is uncomfortable. Other women find that spot and they find it does nothing for them. Others find it and they find it orgasmic. So I think it's one of those things that's, it's a variation of women's bodies. And, but what I don't like and what the dear late Betty Dotson said is that all the media hype around the G-spot is the problem because it has set us back to a Freudian era where we are searching for this vaginal orgasm. I think for me, the only good side is for women attempting to find it, it just kind of equates them with a part of their body that, you know, many women are just kind of scared of. I think for some women, it's kind of disgusting. So go looking for it because you'll explore areas of your anatomy that maybe are a little bit lonely. Yeah. And I also encourage everyone to take a mirror and look at their entire vulva, identify your inner lips, your clitoris, your clitoral hood, your glands, your outer lips. And yeah, get familiar with yourself. And if looking for the G-spot is part of that, great, but don't feel inferior if you can't find it or if you find it and it does nothing for you. Yeah. Or someone tells you that you need it. Right. Right. Perhaps most important. So, Lori, thank you so much. This has been enlightening. It's been entertaining. I really encourage everybody to get Lori's book. It's available on all online booksellers. It's got diagrams. It's got text boxes. It's really an absolutely great read. And there's a chapter there for partners of women, and that is so important. So, that's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at drannkatz.com. That's counseling with two L's. 